Hello, this is the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel. We are discussing Greek history now. In the last episode, we discussed the social and religious life of the ancient Greeks, some of their uh, events, festivals, class distinctions, etc. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. You can also like us on Facebook at the European History Podcast. And if you have any questions or corrections or comments, you can email at the European History Podcast at gmail.com. Today we need to finally finish up with a major event or series of events that really sets the Greeks up for their classical period and Hellenistic periods. We're moving on from their ancient, earlier history. We're ready to move on to the climax of Greek civilization, where the Greeks truly do have the largest impact on the future of European history. So the series of events that we're going to talk about today collectively can be referred to as the Persian Wars. So by the 6th century BCE, uh, the isolation, the fortunate isolation period of the Greeks comes to an end. And it comes to an end, again, remember, due to overpopulation on the Greek mainland. The Greeks had to expand. They could not continue staying all on the Greek uh, peninsula. So they are forced to go out and establish colonies. And they establish these colonies all throughout the Mediterranean region, as far west as where current-day Spain is, on the islands of Sicily, on the peninsula of Italy, North Africa, and also over in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Unfortunately, uh, eventually, the Greek colonies on the um, current-day Turkey in Asia Minor came under the control of the kingdom of Lydia. And this kingdom, uh, they were not harsh against the Greeks, but then the kingdom of Lydia itself was conquered by the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire followed a much more rough pattern of subjugation. And this happened around the year 546 BCE. So we've got these Greek colonies over in Asia Minor. We refer to these Greeks as Ionian Greeks, uh, just so you know. Uh, So under this more harsh Persian subjugation, we see the Ionian rebellions. Uh, They move to, they start moving towards democracy, but they get, their rebellions get put down, they get subjugated. They are forced to pay tribute Uh, to the Persian Empire. They were required to serve in the Persian army. Uh, The Greek Ionians are in these colonies. They're ruled through locals, uh, appointed locals as tyrants, and uh, most of them were not extremely harsh, but, and the tribute wasn't excessive, and there was some general economic and trade prosperity. Uh, But with uh, the coming of Cyrus the Great, we saw, and the suicide of the leader Cambyses, there was more civil war came came back up. Whenever you have a group of people being subjugated and being controlled by some outside, more powerful group, there's only going to be a a certain amount of peace. There's always going to be some rebellion that comes back. We're going to see this pattern happen over and over again throughout European history. So we get Cyrus the Great comes about, comes about, and we have more civil wars causing a disturbance for the Ionian Greeks. When Darius comes up in 521 BCE, uh, the Ionians, they again go back, they become much more obedient and compliant. 
This starts to come to an end when uh, this Greek uh, Miletus, the ty- uh, in Miletus, this tyrant Aristagoras, he organized the a Ionian rebellion in the year 499 BCE. He overthrew the tyrants and he pre- he proclaimed a democratic government. So he's a tyrant, but he proclaims a democratic form of government. So he's he's a tyrant slash freedom fighter slash. terrorizer depending on your perspective and he proclaims a democratic government he asks sparta for help because he knows you know we're just colonies you know we can't stand up to the persian empire so he contacts the spartan city-state but and asks them for military help he needs soldiers sparta says no and if you remember our episode about sparta you know why sparta says no we're not interested sparta has become a very powerful military society uh, a military state but they became that because they had to if they wanted to keep their helot slaves under control. Sparta needed its soldiers to keep its servants, its state slaves, under control. So they have no interest in going across the Aegean Sea over to Asia Minor to help out these Ionians who they don't have much of a relationship with. So Sparta says, no, we have no interest and we're really afraid of just leaving, having our soldiers leave our territory. So um, they go and ask Athens. They have more ties with Athens, and Athens has a lot of conflict with the Persians anyway. And they have a lot of conflict with the Persian control of the agricultural land up up north and throughout the islands. And so Athens says yes. So the uh, they attack Sardis. They, they lead an attack on Sardis, which was, it's again, we're back in Asia Minor. It was the old capital of the kingdom of Lydia. And they burn Sardis to the ground. And it spreads to other uh, colonial towns, colonial locations, but there was no follow-up, and it failed. And the Persians took back over. All right, so that's step one. What caused the Persian Wars was these Ionian Greeks, these Greek colonists, having these rebellions and trying to get help from the Athenians, the Greek mainland, to help achieve independence from the Persian Empire. Persia's not going to like this. Persia doesn't like this uh, attempt to question their authority. And so Persia is going to come back. Persia's going to counterattack and see, well, you guys try to get the Ionians free. We're going to try and take over all of Greece. And so this is what happens. So we see a war in Greece. In the year 490 BCE, the Persians launch across the Aegean Sea to punish those Athenians. They want to punish Athens. They want to take over Greece. They control the sea. They have a much more, they have better ships. They're faster. There's more of them. They control the sea. They land at uh, the, the area of Naxos and they want to punish it for rebelling. They punish them for rebelling. They also, they capture Eritrea, and, and they send the, pap- the people of Eritrea deep into the interior of the Persian Empire. So they take over this, this Greek location of Eritrea, they physically just move these people to the middle of the empire so they can't be a problem anymore, or they can be controlled. Going further west, they get to they land at Marathon, and yes, this is where we get the, the running race of the Marathon still. And this is where the Athenians re- resist. This Athenian named uh, Miltiades, Miltiades, 
He leads the city's army at Marathon, and with 10,000 Greeks, they kill almost two or three times, up to 30,000 Persian soldiers. So it's a victory at Marathon. That's a critical battle. It, it is Professional historians estimate that if the Persians had won, the future advances of Greek civilization that we may have gotten to, that would have been then carried on in the rest of European, European history, wouldn't have happened. This is kind of like a, it reminds me of a back to the future moment. Like if, if the battle at Marathon had been lost by the Greeks and won by the Persians, the Near East model of civilization could have established itself in Greece, could have spread into European territories. And, and we could have a discussion about, in the end, which, you know, the cultural, political, social comparisons between uh, the Persian civilization and their achievements versus the Greek uh, achievements and their benefits. But not making a judgment call there, if the Persians had won, the Persian culture may have entered uh, a even more climactic influence and in, established the future of European history. But they lost. Uh, the Greeks won at Marathon. And so we have the next period in Greek history to talk about. Next, we need to discuss the, the Great Invasion. So that was kind of like the first step of the Persian attempt to take over the Greek people. The Great Invasion, ten years later, uh, the Emperor Xerxes in 481 BCE sends 150,000 soldiers. This long ago, he get, he's able... This is how great the Persian Empire was. They have 150,000 soldiers, and they have a navy of 600 ships. On the Athenian side, we have Themistocles, and meanwhile, before this, he had persuaded the city-state of Athens to build up their naval power and also to build up naval fortifications uh, for the port built at Piraeus. How do they pay for it? Luckily, they had discovered a, a vein of silver in the territory of the city-state of Athens, and they used the profit from that silver mining to build ships, and they build a navy of 200 ships for Athens. So we still see, you know, they're still short. It's 200 ships to 600 for the Persians, but still, there's a fighting chance there. But the Greeks were not all united. We see this as an Athens-led fight. Only 31 of the hundreds of city-states were willing to help the Athenians, were willing to fight off the Persians. So we don't have exactly a lot of unity on the Greek mainland. Whereas the Persians, of course, they're, they're very unified. They have their military act together. In 480 BCE, Xerxes, the Persian emperor, launched an invasion... He marches to Greece, he marches to Athens, he defeats them, he wants to add them to their subjects, but he's tied to his fleet. The Persian soldiers, they're not, they don't have the home field advantage, so they are tied to their ships because they need to be near their ships uh, or have access to them uh, for supplies, for weapon replacement, repairs, food, etc., so the Persians are kind of, they're larger, they have more people, but they're, they're kind of, they don't have the same mobility. So the Athenian leader, Themistocles, his strategy was to defeat the Persian navy. He says, if we can get the Persian navy to be defeated, 
their soldiers will not be able to stay here. We'll, have, we'll be able to defeat the soldiers if we can defeat the navy. He knew that the Aegean Sea often had very unpredictable storms, and so he tried to delay the army situation. He tried to, de- to delay the land battles and wait for a naval scenario where he could turn the advantage towards the Greeks. And that happened. There was a storm and hundreds, dozens of, hundreds and dozens of Persian ships were wrecked in a, a storm off the coast while the Greek fleet uh, waited uh, safety, safely in this little area that was protected. So Xerxes attacks on land. He goes for it and at Thermopylae. And this is where we get the movie 300 with the Spartans and they fight valiantly to the death. But Xerxes attacks uh, the city-state of Thermopylae, and for two days, the Spartans, the, uh, the Greek soldiers, they butcher Persian troops without many serious, serious losses. And this kind of brings in the question of territory and having the high ground, having these, the geographical advantage in battle can completely change a situation of just the number of soldiers you have. So for two days... The Greeks butcher Persian troops without losing many people. But then, on the third day, a traitor named Leonidas... uh, No, a a traitor showed the Persians a a secret trail where they could come around from the other side. And that left the leader, Leonidas, and 300 Spartans to die fighting to the death. So there's that story. Meanwhile, there's an indecisive naval battle at Artemisium, and the fall of Thermopylae forced the Greek navy to withdraw, because they may get surrounded. So the Greek navy has to withdraw after that battle at Artemisium. After that, the Persians march into Attica, which is basically the, the territory around Athens, and they burn Athens. So the Persians are getting, getting their points too here. But we know the Persians are going to get defeated. There was, and they're defeated decisively at one particular place. It is the naval battle that defeats the Persians that leads to their defeat, and it's the sea battle near Salamis. The Spartans and the Peloponnesians—they're not—they're not navy kind of people. They're—they're they're more land soldiers. The Spartans and the rest of the Greeks on the Peloponnesian Peninsula—they did not want to help with this. But the Athenian leader Themistocles—he threatens them. He doesn't threaten them directly, but he basically says to the Spartans, "We have a navy, and we will put Athenians on these ships, and we'll just leave." He says, like, we'll just give up, we'll get in our ships, and we'll go and resettle the entire culture of Athens over on the Italian peninsula. So, he says, you either help us now or we're going to check out. We're leaving. So, the Spartans did help. They provide soldiers for combat to be get on the ships. And so, Athens has the ships. Sparta allows soldiers to be used to be, to be on the ships. And the Persians they get defeated. And so while the Greek ships were slower, they weren't as maneuverable, they weren't as good, uh, they have a lot of soldiers on them. They just get close enough, and they just attack, and they go into hand-to-hand combat on the ships. So the Persian fleet lost half of its ships, which, at least from the total, was would be 300 ships, and they retreat. 
The Persian general Mardonius, he spent he had spent the winter in the middle of Greece and he tried to get the Athenians to he's trying to use diplomacy and negotiation. He tries to get the Athenians to leave the Greek alliance. He's trying to push the Athenians where I guess some of them uh we're thinking about it. It's like, just forget about these other Greeks. You guys don't like each other anyway. You have all these fiercely independent city-states and you you fight each other whenever you're not fighting someone from outside of Greek culture. So just, just leave. Just leave the Greek uh, alliance and just side with us. It doesn't work out. The Spartan, Spartan leader uh, Pausanias, he leads the Greek army at Boeotia, and there's this great land victory of regular soldier versus soldier victory. And the Persians are defeated at uh, Boeotia. So we got the naval battle at Salamis. Half the Persian ships are destroyed. And we have this great land victory at Boeotia thanks to the Spartans. And meanwhile, over in Ionia, back on the other side of the Aegean, in technically Persian territory... The Ionian, the Persian camp and the, and the fleet was defeated uh, over there, and they withdraw. And so at, at that point, the Persians, they give up. The Persian threat is, is over. So that is the last series, the major event that sets the Greeks up to be free from external existential threat and to be able to really spark out and you know, reach the heights of their cultural history. A little preview for what's coming next, the next chapter, which is going to be the next discussion, is going to be classical and Hellenistic Greece. Hellenic Hellenic civilization has such a huge impact on Western civilization today. Um, Just thinking about the Greeks in general, we are weeks away from starting the celebration every four years of the Summer Olympics. That is from these Greeks. We are going to be playing some of the same games that were the Greeks centuries ago. So the Bronze Age of Crete influenced these people, the Mycenaean culture that we've already discussed. These earlier Greek cultures were closer to other early civilizations that were not European, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Mesopotamian cultures. What came afterwards were, we had this Hellenic difference. The the Hellens were much different than the earlier Greek period. Hellenic culture was unstable. They were willing to depart from patterns. It wasn't as parochial, as you will, as, as Minoan culture was and Mycenaean culture was. They departed from the pattern. And so with the collapse of the Mycenaeans, we saw this harsh decline. We saw the Greek Dark Ages, which we discussed. The trade shrank. Commerce came to a stop. Artistic knowledge and practices were forgotten. The ability to read and write was lost. And then the Greeks have a comeback. They have this great comeback. And the foundation for their greatest achievements are established by ancient Greek things that we have discussed. First, the polis. They established this idea of a polis. And they have this attachment and they have this loyalty. And the idea of dissolving one's loyalty and dissolving the the fiercely independent city-state of a polis was unthinkable. And so we have this Greek identity established in and by the polis. 
Also, we have this dynamism. Because of all that loyalty, these poluses uh, do not like each other. They are dynamic. They are competitive with each other. They are they establish rivalry for achievement, rivalry that pushes them to become more excellent than any of the other city-states. Also, it gives the negative characteristic of them having constant warfare. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next, in the next discussion. When there's no Persian outside threat, they go to war with each other. And there's a lack of cooperation. They do not want to cooperate towards a, a common Greek achievements that all city-states can take credit for. They, they're, they're petty. There's no other way to put it. They're, they're petty against each other. And they fight each other. And a lot of this, remember, is, must be driven by resources. We've already seen the Greek requirement of colonization. Greeks are being pushed out of uh, their homeland because there's not enough food. And so they don't cooperate. It's a matter of we want to dominate. We want to be able to have the resources that allow the people of our city-state to survive. And so we're not going to cooperate and lose advantage just for the sake of this idea that we're all just Greeks. You understand that these people, they identify as Athenians. They identify as Spartans or as Corinthians. So the positive, the negative there is that they, they go to war with each other far too much. It is destructive economically and politically. A positive will be is that that rivalry for excellence pushes technological development, pushes for greatness in literature, plays, poetry, art, technology, like I said, and economic success. So over time, we see that republics sprang up, and since most Greeks were so poor, there was egalitarianism. They, their class distinctions were not as, uh, as clear. They weren't as strong compared to others. I mean, there was this upper class, but there weren't many people in that upper class. Most everyone else was in a, for better or worse, comparatively very similar situation economically and socially. With the development of the hoplite, that military strategy of all these men standing in a large group, that meant that the safety of the society was in the hands of the average Greek person, the Greek, uh, Greek farmer. There was, uh, so there was little bureaucracy, there were fewer kings, I mean, there wasn't enough surplus, food surplus to support having a king with that kind of authority. There was little regular taxation. There was no religious class of priests, if you notice that. When we discussed about Greek religion, the polytheistic uh, panoply of Greek gods, there wasn't this, this class of clergy. There was no class of priests who said, this is the religion of the gods. This is what Zeus wants. These are going to be the prayers for the day. It, it wasn't the, there was no clergy class that was leading Greek religion. There was no concern really with an afterlife. It was kind of just a the world of the dead, uh, the underworld, and everyone's going there, and it's not that great, and so why worry about it? Being a good person, this is, again, a big difference between Greek polytheistic religion and, and the ideas of, of Judaism or Christianity, is that for the Greeks, I said, if you're a really good person, you're still going to the underworld. If you're a bad person, you're going to the underworld. And so the impetus to being a, a good Greek person was achieving good fu a good future for your family after you die. It was 
a long-term planning, uh, having success, being more excellent than your neighbors, and helping your family to become better and get ahead, even though you're not going to enjoy it. There was this loyalty to your family and your city-state. So there was a this very dynamic kind of free context that emerges to think and question. And so we're going to see the speculative natural philosophy. We're going to start talking about Plato. We're going to talk about uh, Aristotle and a whole list of Greek thinkers who think about medicine. They think about technology. They're, think, they're going to think about astronomy through observation and reason. And these Greeks are going to have a cultural root in science and philosophy that is not affected by anything except just observing the natural world. And that's what, that is something that makes Greek culture uh, great, makes it special. So we saw that trade and fundamental economic social things, they changed, they're going to overthrow, they overthrew the aristocracies. And we saw these weird tyrannies actually push towards democracy. So we saw this government change over time from traditional monarchy to aristocracy to tyranny to finally democracies being more popular. The Persians, and then finally what we just finished, the Persians, they conquer the Ionians, but they're later defeated and the Persians fail to take over the Greek mainland. So we're ready to start with the classical and Hellenistic period of Greece. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, last part and my little summary there. And if you have any questions, you can always email at the European History Podcast at gmail.com. Again, this is the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel.